Hey everyone, this is Mike Dunn. And I'm Janine Dunn. I'm Julie Cook. And you are listening to Rethinking EDU. We're so glad you're here to join us for this amazing episode. We're winding away slowly at the end of summer. August is coming to a close. And um, co-hosts, I know that you probably don't want me to talk about this, but lots of people out there are already back in school, kind of already getting ready to go to school. Julie... Uh, yeah, Julie, you feeling okay about going back to school? Uh, maybe? <laughs> I'm excited to go back. Um, I don't know what it's going to look like again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I feel like we're back yeah. in the same uh, zone of uncertainty, but uh, still looking forward to it. Um, can't wait to get back with the kids. Yeah, I agree. Good. Yeah, I, I too am excited to go back. Um, should be an interesting year. I'm hopeful for all of the best everybody that everybody stays safe and all you educators out there you know we're we're rooting for you hand over fist and uh, really hoping for an amazing year from everybody and to join us in this conversation we have dr antonio boyd antonio have you gotten used to people calling you doctor yet because like it's a little weird for me i don't know about you no it's weird for me as well as a matter of fact i work with <laughs> two other doctors and one of my colleagues dr melanie hicks he's been a doctor for a while I told her what do you do when you have this weird feeling about being called a doctor she said I just have you know people call me male and then in formal settings, <laughs> I let them call me doctor so that's kind of been the way I've approached it I'm still Antonio and then if you you know want to call me yeah. Dr. Boyd that's on you but I I'm not flying in that lane right now because it doesn't matter you know that's how I look at it. yeah 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 I actually a couple people call me Dr. Mike and that feels probably the most natural, you know, um, way to to deal with that. But Doctor yeah. Dunn, that's like serious. That's like I'm. Uh, that's like I'm a, in like a, you know, a bad crime uh, television yeah, show Dunn. or something like that. And I'm like, Doctor Dunn, that's very serious. Yeah. So, uh, so Doctor Antonio, or just Antonio, you are the executive vice president of a organization called Future of School. It's a national education intermediary organization that's mobilizing change in American K-12 schools. Now, your work with them um, is really surrounding encouraging education to become more personalized, more equitable model for all students, no matter where their learning takes place. And I should add here that you are also a recently minted columnist for Getting Smart, which is uh, super amazing. I'm I'm so happy for you, but I don't want to dive quite into getting smart yet. I want to go back to um, Future of School. Can you give our listeners a little snapshot about what Future of School is all about? Right. Yeah. So, you know, our mission is to, um, you know, like you said, ensure that all students reach their unbounded potential, no matter uh, where their learning play takes place. So we are basically trying to mobilize not only um, uh, schools and districts, but also educators, organizations, and businesses in the system so that um, it flows uh, more, um, I guess, fluently for students. And so that's our end goal hmm. is just to make sure that the students can reach as high as they can in an equitable space um, with all the support they need. And so it's really been a wonderful ride because we've been able to uh, work with students, we've been able to work with teachers, and and um, I'm been spending a lot of time, guys, with parents. Uh, I'm happy to mm -hmm. got a getting smart article coming out tomorrow called "Leave No Parent Behind," and the article emphasizes I love where 
parents are in COVID-19 right now, COVID-19 Delta, we're calling it, and just some of their issues and concerns that they have. And then some of the things we learned um, in, through, through the pandemic about parents and ed tech. And um, I don't want to go too into it because you said you're going to come back to this, but we've learned a lot of phenomenal things about how when you guys as teachers send little Johnny home, what does mom and dad do once he gets home? And there's mm-hmm, an equity mm-hmm. issue there. You know, some parents obviously know how to use a Chromebook. They know how to use a Surface. They know how to use an iPad. But there are tons of parents who have no clue. Little Johnny comes right. home, they can't help him. You know, it's, it's sort of like we used to say in the old days when my parents would um, parent me. I don't know the new math, Antonio, so you're going to have to go talk to somebody else, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and so we, we have done a lot of research and work in that area. So be be happy to talk about that as well. So that's kind of what we are. And that's what we do. It's really fascinating when you think about it. Um, the changing science around uh, teaching is happening right before our eyes, right? And as a result, so many parents are kind of left at home, like you were saying, I don't know about the new math. That's because our teaching is getting better. Right. We're teaching students in new ways and more um, engaging ways, but also in more like ways that are, uh, you know, tapped into neuroscience and tapped into student psychology. And as a result, a lot of parents I found um, to be feeling like they're out of the loop. They're not able to help their kid as much. And that's especially true for parents that might only have a GED or might only have an associate's degree or might be a little bit older. You know, um, they just don't have access to those kinds of uh, those kinds of knowledge bases in order to help their kids in um, secondary schools that are continuing to emphasize higher and higher level thinking all through their K-12 experience. Um, so I'm glad you guys are doing that work. And that sounds really important. I want to talk just for a minute before we get in more into future school about you, though. And we're sort of joking at the beginning about Dr. Antonio, Dr. Boyd, what have you. But the reason why we're calling you that is because you recently completed the EDD program at Northeastern University. That's how we met. And um, I'm just curious, like, you know, we've we've talked on this podcast a lot about the reasons why we all ended up getting into that program, but I'm wondering what kind of brought you there? Like, what led you to Northeastern? What led you to that EDD program? You know, what were some of your motivations? Yeah, that's a good question, and, and it'll tie into even why my son is here. So I work for a global charity called Hope Worldwide, and I was actually the vice president of North America, and that charity focuses on youth programs, disaster relief, volunteerism. And my job directly was to oversee 14 countries and 37,500 volunteers, if you can believe that. And um, hmm. um, I used to travel. Uh, I've been to every disaster in the last 10 years because a big part of our work was disaster services. So I traveled like 127 times a year. And then in 2015, I got diagnosed with uh, liver cirrhosis. And basically, they said, you're, sta- you're stage wow. four, right? And so we're going to have to do a liver transplant on you. And um, in 2016, you're going to get it and then your life's going to change. You'll never be able to do that type of job again. So one of our Northeastern alumnus, Dr. Katrina Spidner, close friend of mine, she Mm. said, Antonio, you need to go get your doctorate so that when you get through this transplant process, you could teach, you could, you know, do all kinds of things, consult, you could do, you know, you'll have some kind of Mm -hmm. write books, whatever you want to do. And so 
I was like, ah, I don't know about that. I'm old. I'm a grandfather. What am I going to do that for? But I, yeah. I liked the program because it was online. It was in Charlotte. And so once I got into it, um, it's interesting because I was going to be OLS, Organizational Leadership Studies. But I was my research was about career pathways for kids in high school, secondary school. So my sister or my wife told me, she said, you need to go into curriculum teaching uh, learning because that's more related to what you're doing. So literally, guys, mm-hmm. I had no I have tons of experience in uh, organizational leadership, but I had no clue about what you guys do. And so for <laughs> me, I sat at the front of the class the whole ride because I was like curriculum, all this Dr. Unger experiential learning. I mean, all of it was fresh for me. So it's been a wonderful experience. And why my son is here is because um, uh, they're now saying that I I'll know if I have to go on the transplant list on Wednesday. So he's coming because he oh, came wow. here because he's like, I want to be there when they either make the decision that you've got to move forward or they're saying that, you know, you're okay and you won't have to move forward. So literally this is happening in real time. So you guys got me on a good week. <laughs> wow. That's so what a wild ride, Antonio. I can't even imagine. Well, you know, before we move any any more forward, I have to say, like, the most positive vibes, the most positive thoughts that I can possibly send your way a hundred million times over, my friend. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for your work yeah. and education. Thank you for being here with us when, you know, this moment is coming forward for you. And and bring, it, bring in your positive spirit. I mean, I, I can I can speak from just being in class with you, just how... I think motivating you are for other people and for you to be going through something like that while you're <laughs> take going through a doctoral program, that's, that is inspirational. I think that, you know, guys, I think the program got me through. There are many uh, discouraging days when you're battling uh, liver disease. And I told my son in the car, I said, this was my COVID uh, going to eat, um, Northeast. It was my COVID project, right? Cause I could have been depressed, mm-hmm. but I had something to keep my focus and, uh, you know, fellowshipping with colleagues like you and, just learning new stuff, it makes your mind feel more invigorated and you don't think about negative things like I would have if I um, didn't go through the program. So I, I thank Dr. K and I thank all my colleagues and professors because it really gave me a good life while I was going through this process, you know? Now, you certainly seem like one of those people, you have your hands in, in a little bit of everything going on. And I know you've done you've done way more uh, work up to this point um, that I'm sure we could you could probably tell We'll have to have several podcasts for you to kind of capture all the work that you've done. <laughs> but I'm, I'm wondering if you could maybe kind of talk a little bit about like, what was that? What was the catalyst that really brought you to Future of School? Like what really drew you into working with, with that organization? Yeah, that's a funny, you know, I appreciate you asking me that question. So what I was doing before Future of School was when I got diagnosed, my wife said, you know, you can consult a little bit, but we got to monitor. So I used to chair the South Carolina Association of Nonprofits. And they have a consultancy, an education consultant that, you know, is available for any uh, education nonprofit in the state. And so they made me that consultant. So when COVID hit, I got a call from Amy Valentine, who's the president and CEO of Future School, because she had given a innovative educator prize to a um, teacher in Anderson County. And guys, to tell you the landscape of South Carolina, we have uh, 47 districts. We have 20 that are uh, blended in online. We have 17 that are blend online slash pencil, what we call online slash pencil. But then we have what we call our equity districts, which are rural 
poor districts that are all pen and paint paper. So when COVID hit, they had no clue about how they were gonna do online and blended because they had they they just don't have the money to buy the Chromebooks and stuff. If you could believe that in, in 2021. Oh, so I this, believe it. Yeah. This teacher, she had these kids that lived in this poor community and she needed 37 Chromebooks. So Amy called me and the first time she called me, I hung up because I thought it was one of those calls, right? Click. And then she called me back and said, my name is Amy. And I said, oh, okay. She said, I, you're the guy for South Carolina. Can you help me raise some money to get some Chromebooks? I've got these kids. And I said, well, I can't help you raise no money, but I do know the uh, president of the United Way of Anderson County. And I called her and she said, I'm working on food and medicine and all these things. You know how when COVID first hit, you know, social service agencies are right in the middle of it. She said, but let's call the United Way Association, which we served on the board of that uh, before. And they had just bought 137 or been donated by Google 137 Chromebooks to do the census. And of course, in COVID, nobody's going to do the census, right? So we talked to, they have a headquarters in um, Charleston, and they donated the Chromebooks to that school. And so Amy was like, Roy, you're resourceful. You got more Chromebooks in three days than I got in the last year. Can you help me um, wrangle Google, Apple, and Microsoft to do more of this kind of thing and come on board at Future Schools? And that's literally how I got going. I said, well, I'm a graduate student. I could do 10 hours a week. Next thing you know, I'm executive vice president of a company. <laughs> so I went from 10 hours to what I'm doing now. And we've been working with the big three on a lot of projects. But it's, guys, what you guys are going through, man, with these companies, it's crazy. I mean, I'm I'm working with, 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 with them at a top level. And it's just interesting to see the dynamics of these ed tech companies and how they work with school districts and teachers. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I bet. We were hoping you could tell us a little bit more about what's going on at Future of Schools right now. What does your work look like and how are you gearing up for 2021? So coming off of uh, COVID, when we were, you know, going back and everything was looking good and we were all thinking school was going to be normal, I had come up with this idea and we should have interviewed you guys and maybe we'll do this called One Big Idea. Because we had gotten contacted by the U.S. Department of Education uh, to start working with the faith-based office. And, and what I wanted to do was get folk like yourself who had gone through COVID and ask you, what is your one big idea that could change education now that you've had that experience? So what happened was a lot of thought leaders from across the country have been on that podcast and it's been very well received. I mean, we've had a lot of high level leaders uh, be on that. So that was one idea. The other idea I told colleagues, I said, we've got to capture, right? We went through COVID but who's documenting what we learned, right? And nobody, we even feel anybody out there was documenting anything. Now, the um, um, we work a, we work a lot with the uh, associate the superintendents association, Dan Dominich, and all the thirteen thousand superintendents in the country. So they've been documenting best practices from a district level. But what we wanted to do was document what teachers learned, what school leaders learned, and then what districts learned. So we created this program called the Resilient District Prize, where we took some of the money that we were funding um, Innovative Educators Award and said, we're going to give four teachers who have done innovation and anybody in the country can apply 10,000 for whatever they want to do around, you know, continue kind of their innovation. We're going to give four schools and four districts. So we had about 70 districts. I mean, I'm talking urban, big urban districts, rural, small schools like the one you're working on to work at, Mike. 
we had the CAPS network apply, and they're judging those now. And so what we're going to do is we're going to give those awards, and then the Successful Practice Network is going to put together a book that'll um, come out in September. So that's what we wanted to do and what we're going to continue to do. But now the Delta variant is here, and guys, we're literally going to have to go back to kind of what we were doing uh, in the first wave, which was one of the things we did in early was what we call the teacher triage, where we just gave teachers money every week. Like, okay, like you guys, okay, just tell us, you know, I need $50 for a pizza party on Friday because my kids are tired of wearing these masks. And you could apply, you know, and so we, I think, I think where we're going back to, to be honest, is what we call crisis schooling mode, where we're going to just do, you know, try to mitigate crisis schooling and, and, and really try to help with online and blended education. There's a lot of signs in the wind right now. There's more districts I'm reading about every day that say it. they're going virtual again. And if we get back to a fully virtual environment or even a quarter of a virtual environment, let's try to support that transition. So that's what we're working on now. So be looking for that resilient district prize just because I think it's going to be cool. The one thing I will tell you guys, though, is we thought there were going to be a lot of in-depth innovation out there. Mm-hmm. And we, we really are not seeing it. And that's the, that when I got back to the office last Thursday, that was a disappointment for me because I just knew people were out there innovating. Well, not so much, <laughs> to be honest. Can you just give us a few insights into what have we learned? What kinds of things are, are you coming back with? Well, you know, so I'm going to do teachers. I'm going to do students, teachers, parents, districts. So students, we learned a lot about social emotional learning. And what we learned is that kids are devastated by COVID, right? What we learned is like in um, Clark County, Las Vegas, they had 18 suicides in it in their secondary schools. And most of it was because of the socialization of young people. Uh, we learned a lot of learning loss in big districts like New York. We learned a lot about how uh, efficacy is a huge issue. Little Johnny does not want to stay on that computer uh, we learned, you know, of, of course, districts across the country had to minimize their standards because nobody's going to pass those tests, right? Uh, what we learned about parents, like I said, we've done um, what we call parent tech trainings in rural districts where parents had no clue on how to use Microsoft Surface or a Google platform. So we actually got Google and Microsoft to give those trainings away for free. And what we learned is, is that, you know, you can't really help little Johnny if you don't know how to use it, right? And and a lot of these parents were accessing uh, their their relationship with their kids on their phones because Apple platform can be on a phone. So we learned that at a school level, we learned that schools need resources. Even though there's a lot of money out there, there's still some real efficacy, I mean, equity issues, especially in urban districts. Um, and, you know, we had a school in Charleston that's one of our star schools where the this got on the Today Show. The principals working at Walmart in the evenings to just get money for uh, his kids during COVID. Or one of the teachers that we gave, Chef El Jamal in Chicago, he would go into one of the worst neighborhoods in Chicago with his uh, Verizon Wi-Fi. So every day for eight hours so that his kids could have Wi-Fi to do their homework. We gave that guy some money. So we learned there was a lot of equity issues and at the district level. I mean, when you talk about Miami-Dade, when, um, not Miami-Dade, but I think, yeah, it was either Miami-Dade or Broward County. They had a little 16-year-old guy hack their whole 
online system. <laughs> and so we learned the district weren't really prepared from a cybersecurity standpoint um, in regards to how they were going to run, um, you know, things. So we learned a lot. I mean, there's a lot out there. And I don't know that we learned from anything, but we did learn a lot. Does that make sense? That that equity is huge, yeah. I think just learning that the, the pandemic in itself has created more awareness around this idea of equity, I think, um, in, in realizing that not the kids just don't have access to stuff uh, is huge. Yeah, I, there's so much to, to chew on there, which you just talked about, Antonio. I, I think one of the things I'm wondering is you guys are operating, Future of Schools operating at like, um, like you were saying, with sort of top level organizations, Microsoft, Google, Apple, whomever else, right? And that's super important work. I've talked a number of times on this podcast how I think education needs to have kind of two avenues in which it's pursuing change. Top level work with the organizations that you're talking about at the policy level, et cetera, but then at the same time, grassroots level work at the classroom level. I'm wondering how you kind of um, move between the super top level work while also maintaining a focus on um, like how those policies, how the actual like computers are getting to students at the classroom level, right? How do you go between the top and the bottom while maintaining focus and kind of maintaining um, I guess, uh, communication and, you know, like integration with folks that are acting at the classroom level. Right. So that's a great question. Like, and I just got a call on that today. So, so, so what we've done is the reason why we pursued the big three at the highest level, like, um, working with the chief executive officer of, um, Google education. I, I won't mention her name just because she may not want me to mention it, but just talking to her today. So we go to her and say, hey, hey, end of the day, we're an intermediary between you and 200 districts. And I know you want to sell computers, right? But what we want to do is we want to make sure that on the ground, we can connect you, your big entity, with solutions that can help Mike Dunn if he has a problem. Okay? And nobody's too small, right? And so, for instance, there's a, in Charleston County, South Carolina, the Charleston County School District, when COVID hit, 70% of the kids in Charleston proper went to school all last year. Only 10% of the kids, or 20%, in North Charleston went to school because 5,000 people in the community got COVID. So the North Charleston folk, we had to create community learning pods where they would go to school in the community. But we had to get Google to say, hey, we got to get some computers for these churches and nonprofits and other groups who want to do these pods. So little Johnny didn't have to go in the school building because he might get COVID and bring it back to his grandmother and she would die. He can go to the local church. And that's kind of the solutions that we work on. And then, so for instance, so now, um, because they had the experience last year, Charleston County and a consortium of schools in that area have 473 families that are of color who said, we're not sending our kids back regardless. So they created a virtual academy. So I got a call like two weeks ago where they couldn't navigate Google just to get somebody to train their teachers on Chromebook, right? So they called me and said, can you call mm -hmm. the top people at Google and get this done for us? Because our local guy won't call us back. 
Well, I call that guy the boss. <laughs> Hey, uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I got a call today. She said in 24 hours it was fixed. Wow, that's awesome. So that's kind of the stuff that we're working on every day, right? Um, those type of sure, solutions. sure. So can you tell me a little more about how educators uh, can apply for grants through Future of Schools? Yeah, it's just right on our website. You click on um, um, the uh, teacher. Uh, you click right here. It says uh, support educators, and then. Uh, you click and you can apply. And uh, this year, uh, we used those funds for that um, resilient school project. So that already passed. I think the deadline to get that grant in was, I think, end of July or August 1st. And they've already even had the judging. But what we, since we didn't get a good cohort of folk who did any innovation, uh, the team who's heading that up said that they're going to do a redo in November, maybe because they're thinking that maybe because, you know, we put it out in May, folks who just had their head buried in the sand trying to close out this year. And, and a lot of the Janine Dunn's of the world didn't apply or the mics. And so if we put it out again in October, maybe you guys will apply because we wanted the innovators. And unfortunately, yeah, we, we, we got oh, We will who, apply. <laughs> yeah, we, we I can tell you, we, say, you, know, you are I, resilient. You know, you know, we, 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 one of the ladies that is getting an award <laughs> and we love teachers you guys are so awesome because you guys don't ask for like crazy stuff you ask for just like one simple thing that you need as a solution if you just had the money for this you know and so it just breaks our heart to see that teachers don't have the money for those little things that could make such a difference in kids lives you know so please apply yes yes you should come visit our school antonio Hey, hey, I would love to, you know, I would. But actually, Dr. Melanie Hicks is heading up our networks. And so she's really the, she loves to travel. So she, you know, I'll definitely send me your email. and I'll let Melanie know about you. She loves to go to schools. So Antonio, I always know you as having um, all sorts of like little random side hustles you got going on. You know, like uh, um, I was just cruising through your LinkedIn profile and you got a little dabble in this, little dabble in that. And I'm just curious what kinds of side hustle projects you got going on these days. Anything cool in the works? Anything happening either with Future of School or without Future of School? Um, you know, no. I, well, yeah. So I'm, I am working kind of now. I'm kind of narrowing um, my focus and on this equity and access stuff, right? Because of just my dissertation. So I've been asked to do... Um, we have 1,400, well, let's put, let me say this to you guys. South Carolina is ranked 44th for the nation in education, but we're ranked number 10 in after school in the country. So there's a huge disparity between our system and what we're doing um, outside of the day, school day. And since my research was on after school, our, our after school alliance is trying to see what are the equity issues there. So we're going to do a study on kind of why is there systematic racism in the system, but not in after school, right? And so I think that's a pretty cool project. I was sharing that with um, um, one of our professors, you know, the policy guy at uh, at uh, Northeastern, Mule, and he was like, "Dude, that is crazy," because that's what you wrote about uh, when we did our policy class. So we're trying to figure out some stuff. You know, we had a law in um, passed in nineteen seventy in South Carolina that said we could offer students a minimally adequate education, and that's okay. And so in South Carolina, um, that was a big issue uh, where we even had documentaries done on that, where there was this huge disparity between our 
our, our um, rural, I mean, our, our suburban districts and our inner city and rural districts where the buildings are old and books from 1932. I mean, crazy stuff. And so I'm very interested in seeing how we can maybe fix that from a systems level. That's my, that's my latest side hustle, Mike. <laughs> cool. That's super cool. That sounds super interesting. And, you know, they talk uh, pretty often when you're in a doctoral program, right, as you're kind of winding down your program, um, uh, like, scope, and you're finishing your dissertation, there is often talk like, what do you do next? And how can you capitalize directly on your research as a, you know, springboard into the next thing that is happening on your list and um, and like how you want to make that change using your research. I think it's really easy if you're a um, scholar practitioner to kind of do your research, get that thing done and never touch it again. Right. Um, because you, you, you're, you get embroiled in the day to day activity of your like existence as a teacher or as a principal or what have you and and i think it's super important that more scholar practitioners take that step of engaging with their research um you know fairly quickly after they complete it uh i think i think that it sounds like you're kind of on that track yeah yeah well i i jumped in also um i was asked to join a group of uh leaders uh to do the same kind of work in equity with healthcare providers, because in South Carolina, we were also having an issue with COVID and, and the disparity between the healthcare. And I have some background in healthcare because of my work at Hope Worldwide. So I got the taste of it with that group. And then once this opportunity, well, they reached out to me and said, hey, you did this in your research, can you come help us? And so I jumped on that opportunity because I really think it's important. I mean, we have some serious issues uh, in this area in South Carolina. So we're trying to work on this stuff. Antonio, we knew this about you from the discussion boards, that you always have a hand in something. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the good old discussion boards. So, Antonio, um, you have been a, a recent uh, columnist on the on Getting Smart, and uh, Tom Vanderark and Emily Liebtag have actually been uh, guests on the pod here. Um, do you want to uh, tell us a little bit about what you've been thinking about on Getting Smart? Yeah, so I started... Um writing about schools, right? So I, uh, Dr. Unger and um, um, my dissertation, uh, uh, Dr. Childress McGee always all pushed me, you got to write, dude, you got to write the stuff that you're working on needs to be written. So I wrote about Olympic High School and then I wrote about Academic Magnet. I don't know if you've ever heard of that school. It's the number one school in the nation down in uh, North Charleston. And um, those got picked up, right? And then um, just did a couple of other articles. I think it was like two others. And then one of their team reached out to me while I was actually down at the Mayo Clinic and said, hey, we really liked what you're doing. Would you be willing to be a monthly columnist with us? And I just was floored. I told my wife, what? This is crazy. Like, really? And so I I um, said, okay, yeah, because I want to I write books and do stuff like this. And so um, I'm doing this piece, No, no Parent Left Behind. Uh, this month, this comes out tomorrow. And then um, I'm also, because I do college and career pathways research, there's a, a project called Career Navadir where uh, I'll be talking about, there's a recent article in the New York Times saying that 70% uh, of the African-American students who got a college degree are now in more debt than they were before they went to college. And this is kind of a crust of my career pathways where 
So I want to write about that. How do we how do we make this that process more equitable if we're going to continue to tell uh, these young people that you know college is the way to, to get through life, but yet still they're strapped with debt and they're not really making it in our society. So that'll be what's coming out in September. So I'm just going to continue kind of write on these equity issues, you know, and try to put something out there to get people thinking about this stuff, you know. Antonio, we should we should connect outside the pod to talk more about that because I got lots of thoughts to share with you. Yeah, like I said, I want you guys, I'm going to email Amy tomorrow and say, hey, you need to talk to this Rethinking Edge routine. They, they got some big ideas. <laughs> get yeah, man, and we, we try. And she loves we teachers, try, we so try. She'll, she'll jump on that. Hey everyone, this is Mike. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode with Antonio Boyd in our conversation about his work at Future of School. Check out the website futureof.school to read more about Antonio's work and to get in on those teacher grants. Those are a big deal. We'll drop a link to that website in the show notes, but head on over there right quick to get a handle on what Antonio's got going on. We would also love if you headed over to our Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash rethinkingedu, where you can support us at the $1 or $3 a month level. At the $3 a month level, you get exclusive access to our behind-the-scenes conversation with our guests, for example, Antonio Boyd. We're calling that exclusive content the Think Tank, where you can get just more of that Rethinking EDU that you love in your life. So head on over to patreon.com slash rethinkingedu, support us. And also be sure to check out our very own Matt Downing's podcast called Diving Deep EDU. Thanks. A quick interruption to let you know about another great podcast. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Diving Deep EDU. Thought-provoking conversations. So friends, we're getting in late into the podcast, and I want to transition a little bit into our reflection segment where we always ask ourselves and our guests to reflect on our conversation, share a couple things that this conversation is sort of making us rethink about education. Of course, I always have lots of thoughts, but I sometimes feel like I go first too often. So Janine, why don't you go first? What is this conversation making you rethink about education? It's funny. I always think that too. I have I have lots of thoughts. And- <laughs> Careful, careful of my airtime. Um, yeah, right, right. All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take on. I really appreciate the comments about just the inclusion of parents. Uh, leave no parent behind. I can't wait for you to come out with that article. But um, reminding that reminder that you know, if you want to bring parents along, you have to educate them as well too. That here we are distributing all of this kind of technology, and yet we're we're and we're expecting parents to be involved in their child's you know education. But if they don't know how to access what the kids are doing online, then those expectations should really be thrown out the window because that's that's totally not fair. Um, so I, I definitely I have this written down here, like to have like a parent tech night at school so that we can we can definitely make sure that they they know how to access things. So I appreciate that, Antonio. Julie, what are you thinking? I'm thinking about um, how your conversation is challenging us to think about the school as embedded in the community, how wonderful it would be to really think about what have we learned through COVID 
And since we're bracing for, you know, whatever comes next, I, I think we are more resilient, as you said, um, then we're, we're, this isn't sneaking up on us this time. So I'm looking forward to um, mastering, um, becoming, you know, fluid, you know, in and out of the classroom um, and definitely doing it better. Um, and then also just thinking about the school as a community, um, the community hub, the learning center uh, for families um, and students and teachers and how we value school and how does the school value families. So these are some of the things that Antonio challenged me to think about uh, tonight. Yeah, I, Julie, I think you're stealing a lot of what my thoughts are, too. You know, we we've talked to a number of guests on this podcast around what role does school play in helping parents really help their kids? And I think of a lot about this when it comes to the homework wars, right? Which if you're ever on Twitter and you get into one of these, you know, hashtags um, that is following a chain where people are, you know, tweeting back and forth about the value or lack of value of homework, this is really what it comes down to for me. And, you know, I spent the last 11 years working at a school for kids with language-based learning disabilities. And so many of those kids' challenges were around accessing text, um, you know, at a, at a level that um, was high and challenging text. And doing that on their own was probably the hardest thing that they could do. And when their parents tried to engage them in in, you know, homework at home, parents were like, I don't know how to help my kid. And part of the reason was because they weren't trained professionals, right? We're talking about people who work at hospitals as nurses or as doctors, people who work in law offices, people who work as landscapers, people who work as plumbers, all their kids going to the school and they're trying to help their dyslexic student figure out how to access text when it's, it's, a literal neurological challenge that they're having. And we're asking them to do that at home with very little support. So I think it begs the question that if we're going to continue to ask students to grapple with text, if we're going to continue to ask students to grapple with high-level numeracy skills, that we need to be spending time helping parents help their students more effectively or providing um, additional resources to where students can, uh, you know, access that extra help potentially with their parents' guidance so the parent doesn't happen to have to act as the expert in those fields. You know, if we're talking about like a, a family who owns a landscaping business and, and the kid is taking Calc 2 in high school, potentially members of that family never had to, uh, you know, take math at that level. So how are we going to ask them to do, you know, unsupervised homework assignments at home without offering support for those parents? So I think um, that's sort of what this conversation is making me think of. And, and Antonio, you said it right on, right, that it's ultimately an equity issue when we're talking about education. It is the ultimate equity issue, you know. Um, so thank you for that. And Antonio, what a, what is this conversation making you reflect well, on? Well, you know, I'm honored to be with three educators, right? So I, I really do get jazzed when I'm around 
you guys, right? I, I just do. And it's kind of the same way I felt about the volunteers when I worked at Hope Worldwide. I mean, anybody willing to give up their time to go into a disaster, you got to really feel good about it. Mm -hmm. And to be honest with you, that's what you guys do pretty much. You don't get paid a lot and you volunteer to go into a disaster, right? <laughs> and, so, uh, and so, you know, I'm honored to be with you. And I think the thing that I've been really grappling with, like the last couple of days, this has been burning me in my soul, is this idea that we thought uh, at the leadership level in education, at the at the micro, at the macro level, that we could just turn this spigot off for a year, what seventy months or whatever this COVID has been, and then turn it back on, and it was going to be okay, right? And that was our solution. And we never thought about what if a Delta comes again. We never thought about you know what if we have these rogue governors who say you know you got to wear a mask, you can't wear a mask, politicizing this thing. What if we thought about you know critical race theory and how it's going to be used to to attack a system, you know, where we're going to do cameras in your schools. Um, we never thought about any of those things. And what I'm really feeling is, and then nobody's talking to that frontline front line worker, right? Just like when COVID happened, we got this deep appreciation for all of our restaurant workers, our healthcare workers, and all this. But even in this next wave of Delta, we still are playing games with teachers. We're still, we're still debating, you know, you know, messing with messing around here with 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 the front line of our system and i'm like when are we going to get to a point where we respect the front line and we empower the front line and we understand we ask the front line you know what do you need versus we're going to mandate what you do um and so i'm trying to figure out who in the heck is in charge of that and how either do we fire them or do we make them do the right thing <laughs> you know is that cardoza who is that person because this is a mess, right? That's what I So think. that's like a whole other conversation, much longer podcast. But as we get into this last segment, we always like to share with our listeners some plugs. And um, co-hosts, I see maybe that you all have brought some plugs. Janine, what do you uh, what do you want to plug? Well, I've actually been taking doing a lot of coursework this summer on equity, inclusion, belonging. Um, and one of the books that I am currently reading through, <clears throat> excuse me, is called Five Practices for Equity-Focused School Leadership. And it's it's got some good tips in there. And if there, if there, any schools out there are thinking of doing an equity audit of some sort, uh, this would be a great book for you to investigate. Cool, cool. Okay, we'll drop that link in the in the show notes. Julie, do you got a plug? My fellow action researchers <laughs> from Northeastern, um, I'm reading Street Data. A Next Generation Model for Equity, Pedagogy, and School Transformation um, talks about um, uh, highlighting narrative and lived experiences um, as part of um, gauging school success. Uh, it's one of the things they talk about that's been interesting to me and um, has me thinking um, as an action researcher of late. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I have never had any shortage of books because of this podcast. I'll tell you that. Antonio, what do you, what do you want to plug this evening? Yeah, so I want to plug the resilient district prize coming up. I uh, want you to stay, pay attention to who wins and what, what they went for. Also uh, what we learned, you know, make sure we get uh, that document from the successful practice network. I'll make sure you guys have it so you can distribute it to your folk. Um, also, of course, on the 18th, leave no parent behind is coming out on getting smart. And then I'm writing a book. I'm writing a book that I want to start plugging because I love um, you know this project is called the Booker T Blueprint: Ameri African American Experiential Education in the Jim Crow South. 
And what this book is about is, you know, when we talk about, and you guys know all this because you're younger, younger people, we talk about the fathers of experiential learning. Of course, we talk about Dewey and, and all these folks, Cobb, but we don't talk about Booker T. Washington, who actually uh, not only started the Tuskegee Institute, which was an experiential learning historically black college, but he also started the um, Rosenwald schools, which are 5,000 elementary and secondary schools in the Jim Crow South when uh, black and brown folks weren't able to go to uh, regular schools and also black teachers had nowhere to be trained. And so my book is about what happened, right? Everything from, you know, what was the education experiences of these folks post-slavery to um, how they built this system of schools to how even today, a lot of, uh, of uh, the experiential learning that goes on in historically black colleges that are still going on today that nobody ever talks about. And so what I'm trying to do here is paint, if you're gonna have a Mount Rushmore of experiential learning, you gotta put Booker T. Washington on that mountain. And, and it's, it's one of these things that has happened in our society where a lot of these stories are buried in, in systematic racism. And so I'm trying to, trying to highlight him in a different way. So be looking for that. I'm trying to finish it by uh, the first part of next year and uh, we'll get that out. Sounds good. That's awesome. Yeah, we'll we'll drop a little note about that in our show notes. And as you move forward with that project, let us know. and We'll include a link to it in our future episodes. Dr. Antonio Boyd, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here on our podcast. We couldn't appreciate you anymore. Um, listeners, thank you so much for dropping in on this conversation with Antonio. Um, check us out on where on any platform you get your podcast, but we would love it if you shared our podcast with a friend, potentially an educator that you know that you think would appreciate this conversation. You can also shout us out on uh, LinkedIn, which would be super helpful, or Twitter using the hashtag RethinkingEDU. And if you're really dedicated and you absolutely love this show, head on over to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash rethinkingedu, where you can donate now at the $3 a month level and get our exclusive content called The Think Tank, where you can hear some behind-the-scenes conversations with our guests. Antonio, Janine, Julie, it's always a pleasure. Guests, thank you so much, and keep rethinking EDU.